0: Our first reading is actually two psalms. Normally you only have one, one psalm, but there's a reason for what we're doing. And um, for those that have been attending Christchurch for a while, you know that at the end of every reading we have something that we say. Normally we say, this is the word of the Lord, and then we respond with, thanks be to God. Now, why do we do such a silly thing? Well, first of all, this book, is like no other book on the planet so when you read it it's special and so the there's a tradition that we are thanking the lord for this incredible wonder now there's a special thing you say traditionally it's only a tradition where when you read a psalm which is a prayer and it's uh it's called the gloria patri you probably know it uh, glory to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit Who was in the beginning and is now and ever shall be. Amen. And, um, oh, world without end, if you do the Latin version. (laughs) And because we're doing two Psalms, I thought we should say it just for today. So the first Psalm, Psalm 111, and then Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and is compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, and acted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provides redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness... Light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast. Trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. And in the end. They will look in triumph. On their foes. They have freely scattered. Their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness. Endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high. In honor. The wicked will see. And be vexed. They'll gnash their teeth, and they'll waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. So glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The next reading tonight comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, for whom all things came and through whom we live but not everyone possesses this knowledge some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god and since there is con- since their conscience is weak it is defiled but food does not bring us near to god we are no worse if we do not eat and know better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Our gospel reading this evening comes from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
3: Let us pray. Father, we come before you to worship and glorify you. We come to hear from your word, and as we hear, obey. Let us worship you in spirit and in truth, in word and deed, both here and beyond these doors. pray this in your son's name. Amen. Have you ever listened to a sermon and thought to yourself, what's the point? What is this guy going on about? Yes, no, never, never. Um, Well, lucky you. I've been that person preaching that sermon before. And I've had people come up to me afterwards and they're like, excuse me, but what was the point? Uh, You see, my favorite genre of scripture is historical narrative, and I find it personally to be the most impactful thing I could possibly read. And so I'm standing up here, and I'm preaching the Word of God, and people are like, I get history, but what's the point? Something happened, and then another thing happened, and then something else happened. Well, I would like to stand before you and say that the primary reason we study Scripture is to know who God is. That's the primary reason we study Scripture. And when you read narrative, or at least when I read narrative, I read about people who act who do things in their life, natural things, things that they would do every day because they have a job, because they have a family, because they live. And then God comes along and he says, yeah, that was good. Well done. You, on the other hand, I'm going to send a prophet to you and he's going to tell you that was a bad choice. And you need to repent. And then you have this work, this life, this interaction between people and God. Sometimes a prophet is involved. Sometimes a king is involved. Sometimes it's a normal person like me. But you can see how God interacts with his people. So that's what we want to learn when we study Scripture, is who is God? Well, let's look at Psalm 111. Psalm 111, it has no author, along with Psalm 112, which we'll look at shortly. We assume that it's a post-exilic psalm. Why do we assume that? Well, because it uses earlier psalms in its writing it also um is one of the most beautiful forms of hebraic poetry in the bible if not the best form of hebraic poetry that we can read today which as i've mentioned before might mean that it's the best poetry in the world psalm 111 and psalm 112 the hebrew is outstanding it's a, um, it's a, which means that it starts with an A, continues with a B, goes to a G, because Hebrew, bet gimel, dalit, hevav, and each line starts with a different letter of the alphabet. And it does that all through Psalm 111 till the end, and then it starts over in Psalm 112. And it's also beautiful because the author, they know everything clearly about Hebraic poetry. They know all the rules. So what's the first thing you do when you know all the rules? You break it. So, he breaks it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is the start of the psalm, and that's the start of the next psalm, Psalm 112 as well. He breaks the poetic form to enhance what he is saying, and he does this several times in several ways, which I won't get into, because that won't be the point of of today. I'm not going into Hebraic poetry, Um, but what is the point? Praise the Lord. This is the point I want to get to you. And you might think, well, hallelujah, of course. Psalms start with the word hallelujah. But it's a very specific type of poetry that would not start with that word. But he does. Hallelujah. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. This is, of course, like I said earlier, reminiscent of Psalm 1, the first psalm that we read. You have the council of the upright, the council of, um, of the assembly. You have, uh, later on, you have, um, in verse, uh, at the end, you have the turn to the wicked in the last verse of, of chapter 112. He goes back to Psalm 1. But also importantly, it's a psalm, it's a prayer that you do in public, together, most likely in the temple, given that it's a post-exilic psalm, probably the second temple. And you declare it before the people because they too want to worship God. You don't pray it to declare oh look at me i'm cool i'm awesome i know how to pray to god you do it so that others can join you and it's supposed to be a joint prayer a joint time of worship of god and just a little aside sometimes written prayers are good Of course, there are times when we just need to call out to God in the moment, in the place that we find ourselves. However, there is something to be said for these liturgical prayers. If what we pray, what we speak, what we do, what we think, shows how our heart is, then maybe we should pay attention to what we pray. Because if we're always complaining or always asking for something, constantly asking God for his blessings, but we never bless him in return, if we are constantly giving thanks, but only for the things that we consider to be good, if we are calling out the name of Jesus And we expect that to magically give us the thing that we want. Maybe our theology and doctrine is poor. Maybe we're taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. So taking a moment, in this case, quite a few moments if you've ever written poetry that has this type of form, it, I'm, I mentioned earlier, I started a uh, um, poem like this in like 2013, 2014. It's still not done. Um, because at some point, you get to a, a spot and you're like, I'm, I'm writing words, but they're not useful to my intent. Uh, so yeah, it's not done yet. But the the psalmist here, he uses all the skill that God gives him to turn around and give thanks to God, to praise God. And they thought through the reasons they should really be thankful. Then they blessed God by taking time and effort to write it out, something that is beautiful. So what did he take the time and effort to write out? Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. If the point is to learn who God is, I think each of us have at some point created God in our own image. It's very natural. I think Therefore, I am. I think, therefore, God is, in fact. God is like this. God is like that. God is the one who I call on when I need something. So how do we not create God in our own image? Well, we study I've had people who come up to me and they're like, why do you spend so much time studying the Word of God? Because I want to know who the God I serve is. I don't want to serve a foreign God. I don't want to serve a God I create in my own mind. Now, if all I do is study, that's a separate problem that we'll talk about in the second half of the sermon but I want to know who he is. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He's shown his people the power of his works, giving them the land of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Now, normally, in a psalm like this, it will tell you what these great and awesome deeds of the Lord are, God created the world. God sat enthroned above the floods. God called Abraham. God redeemed his people from Israel. God brought them into the land. He's good. He's great. He's majestic. It's a little bit vague for being so beautiful, but I think that might be on purpose. Because in making it a little bit more vague, I can think about how he has done great things for me. Not just those who came before me. And those Psalms are also important. Because knowing what God has done gives me hope that he will continue to do them. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we can recognize the power, the splendor, the majesty of God. So when we walk outside, when we go to work, have you ever stopped and just thought that piece of grass that's on the side of the road, that piece of grass? is more wondrous than anything I could think of. There's a bird sanctuary down the road. And sometimes, if I have time, I will go there. And you see, like, sun catchers and all of these beautiful birds. And then you see a dove. In fact, you see, like, one sun catcher every three or four times you go there. You see doves and ravens every single time. And yet, how wonderful are they? How great are they? God watches over the sparrow. And it is wondrous. And you stop and you think about what God has done. I live in Jerusalem. I walk past the church, the Holy Sepulcher, four to six times every day and hopefully at least once a week I stop to think to myself wow my God came to earth and a large portion of the purpose was to die on that hill do we stop to think about that But what does it mean that God is gracious and merciful? I can ask each one of you individually. I won't. But you would probably generally give me the same idea, the same concept. Little variations here and there. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who... Nope, that's not a typo. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. Forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his love endures forever. And gave their heritage, their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. We actually see that same concept. This is um, Psalm 136. Uh, in uh, Psalm 111, he's shown his people the power of his works, giving them the land of other nations. That? Would any of you included that in your definition of God's grace and mercy? God's steadfast love? One, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But that is part of the grace and mercy of God. A lot of the other part being many people in those nations actually joined Israel, or at least some did. Do you want to know who God is? Well, see how he acts and reacts. You have the kings, you have the prophets, You have God. Of course, we have our own stories, our own testimonies. Psalm 111 ends with this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. The fear of the Lord. What's that? Well, let's read what Tertullian had to say about the fear of the Lord in his prescription against heretics. He states that if there is no fear of God, or reason to fear, all things are permitted. But the only time there is no fear of God is in the place God does not exist. And where God does not exist, there is no truth. So you might tell me, well, I fear God, but my neighbors don't. Yes, they do. Because God does exist there. And you don't walk outside and see someone running around with a machete trying to kill all of their neighbors in most places. You don't see people robbing because they want something that their neighbor has in much of the world. If you want a promotion in your company, you don't go, well, if that person just weren't there, I could have the promotion. I'll just move them aside and then put them under the ground. No. Because there is fear of God because God exists. He continues, however, where God does exist, there exists the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. So, yes, fear changes. Everything. Fear changes what you do, how you act. If I were to take you up onto a spaceship and told you, look down, point something out that's man-made, everybody would probably say, what's the first thing you think of? The Wall of China. Or at least it would be the first thing I would think of. Um, (laughs) This is why some people go, what is he talking about? The Wall of China, why does it exist? because of fear. This great, massive project that took a very long time to build, thousands of workers, probably many who died along the way, and yet people took the time to build it. If you were to go to Romania today, There are these churches everywhere. And around the churches is a wall. Why? Fear. You see, people kept sweeping across the steps. Horsemen, armies, raiders, who wanted stuff that they had. And so the villagers would build a wall, except instead of building it around their village, They built it around their church, and only their church. And then whenever they heard, ah, they're horsemen. They're about five kilometers away. You run to the church, and then you have a little room that is your family's room in the wall. And you all wait there. The riders come through, they look around, they're like, well, we could take it, but it would probably take us like two days to conquer it. We'll just take the loot and move on. Fear causes action. Wars, why do they happen? Because people are angry? A little bit, but largely because people are afraid. Jealousy and fear. That's what causes war. But we don't know what fear is. or At least, most of us don't. I felt fear once in my life. Just once. And I will thank God every time Because that fear caused me to change my life. Because I knew there was an Almighty God who could stand in judgment above me. I could not sleep because this Almighty God would stand in judgment against me. So I acted. I wanted to know who this God was and I wanted to know him and love him and serve him. Fear changes people, usually for the worse, but not the fear of the Lord. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord again. Hallelujah. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandment. Fear changes you. You will act. You will obey him. You will delight in his commandments because you've studied who he is. We have studied who he is. We've studied what he has revealed to us. So if I tell you Phrases like, his praise endures forever. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. His righteousness actually endures forever. Who am I talking about? Whose righteousness endures forever? Well, God's. Obviously. Who else's righteousness endures forever? Jesus. Who is God? Who else? The Holy Spirit. Who is God? Who else? Yeah, that's right. People. People. How can I make this heretical statement? First of all, it's not heretical because I can prove it. We have studied who God is, at least a little bit. Hopefully not just tonight. If you've only studied who God is tonight, you are more than welcome to come to all of our Bible studies. Even the women will let the men come and the men will let the women come. So we act. We change because the fear of the Lord causes us to change. Psalm 111, verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. Psalm 111 is about God. Psalm 112 is about those who fear God. He provides food for those who fear him. God provides food. Psalm 112, so that's verse 5. Again, I told you the poetry was beautiful. Psalm 112, verse 5, states, Good will come... Uh, that's not the version I prefer. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends. <laughs> Sorry. It is well with the man who deals generously in lands. And again, verse 9, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor. God gives, ergo, I give. We could, I could have preached on, Ma- on Mark 1. I actually did on Wednesday. Um, but you see, Jesus acts in the same way that God does. God visits those who are sick God heals those who are sick well next week we will read that Jesus goes to the house of Peter's mother-in-law he visits her and then he heals her and then what does she do immediately she serves him he does something she does something God clothed the naked. Jesus clothed a naked man in the Galilee. Why is that verse in there? Because people are to do what God does. God fed people. So what does Jesus do? He feeds people because imitation is the greatest form of flattery. It's also the proper way to be a disciple. You want to be a disciple? Imitate. That's what you do as a disciple. Their children will be mighty in the land, The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. This is about people like me and you. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look on triumph on their foes. Oh, well, that's also a form of... Okay, we'll include that. Sure. We can add that in great but that is true but it doesn't stop there they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor so on the one hand they don't have anything to fear on the same hand God scathers their enemies before them but they give because God has given their righteousness endures forever their righteousness endures forever. I told you I could prove it. Their horns will be lifted high in honor. What do we do? If God feeds the hungry, what do we do? Well, we feed the hungry, because we imitate Him. We should deal generously and feed the hungry, give to the poor. If God is gracious, merciful, and righteous, we should be gracious, merciful, and righteous. Knowing God, having that moment of fear and learning to know God is the greatest part of my life. But if I asked my neighbor what the second most important thing in their life is, they probably wouldn't mention me, but I should be. I should be the second most important person to the people around me. You should look to your right or your left and be the most important person in the lives of those around you, because God is the most important, and we imitate Him. Now, righteousness endures forever. What is our reward in heaven? Gold? No. Silver? No. Gems? No. What is our reward in heaven? C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Or in the words of David Pelagi, don't marry your culture because your culture will disappear and you will be a widow. Yes, he's way funnier than I am. It is immortals whom we joke with, immortals who we work with, immortals who we marry, immortals who we snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or... Immortal splendor. What is our reward in heaven? A, we get he who God is for who he is. B, it's the person next to you. Or I hope it is. That is your reward in heaven. The things we do on earth will last forever. So the things we do here in imitation of God will last forever. So let us praise the Lord. Let us walk in the fear of the Lord. And let light dawn in the darkness as we are gracious, merciful, and righteous. Amen.